equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now Displayed with good intentions Welcome to 1200, the independent politics and media podcast for this midweek episode i am joined by professor mohan Dutta. welcome to the cast Kia kyle thank you so much for having me i'm so glad you reached out um yeah really looking forward to getting to a, a quite a detailed conversation with you about the media and about the different narratives that are currently at play across the the new zealand and international kind of media framework but maybe we just start with uh, a brief introduction from you uh, for our audience, uh, so they know where you're coming from uh, on this issue and on these uh, on these details. I'm so glad that we are having this conversation. You know, we have gone back and forth uh, chatting on Twitter, so it's really good to bring that onto uh, this uh, platform. Uh, most of my scholarship is on looking at the intersections of whiteness, so which is uh, sort of the universal framing of uh, white culture as the basis of norms and ideals, um, and how that shapes communicative processes, particularly in terms of um, what are uh, the kinds of narratives we hear and what are the kinds of narratives that are erased. I am specifically interested in this question of erasure, you know, tracing erasures in uh, colonial contexts, um, uh, tracing erasures at the raised margins of um, the capitalist uh, systems and then looking at the ways in which we can build voice infrastructures for those at the margin so you know all the way from experiments like community radio to um, uh, media production uh, spaces to uh, theater uh, based spaces that work toward uh, building those architectures for erased voices to be heard. Thank you so much for that. And it's one of these, I guess, frameworks which has just drawn so much attention on you from the far right and from right wingers in general, um, because it's so directly at odds with what they're trying to do in the communication space. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of it is uh, sort of this idea that one can hold dialogue between, uh, say, for instance, these white uh, supremacist ideals and uh, those who have systematically been erased is sort of the overarching ideology of the liberal apparatus, if you will. And uh, that is what I describe as whiteness, you know, the uh, ways in which um, are taken for granted norms about dialogue and what is possible uh, shape um, uh, our conversations. And, you know, what I have systematically found in my research is that, um, in fact, those kinds of um, uh, colorblind appeals to dialogue often um, erase, actually perpetuate further violence and further erasure by, on one hand, performing some kind of representation, and on the other hand, uh, continuing to uphold those hegemonic ide uh, ideals that lead to the erasures without really questioning them. So I guess, uh, the, you know, the naming of this as whiteness is what um, uh, triggers the uh, far right, if you will, right? Because um, yeah, that work of naming it is seen as um, uh, anti-civilizational or anti-white civilization, really what it is um, uh, that's occurring there. But also it is seen as anti-democratic. Um, so you're portrayed as either a terrorist or a racist for actually, uh, you know, naming that communicative process as whiteness. Yeah, and you seem to get a lot of uh, discourse around things like reverse racism, right? Yes. Which isn't yes. real, uh, which is just a uh, justification for these attacks. Um, I think for our audience members who aren't listening, a, a really good example, or who are listening, but who haven't uh, engaged in these this discourse previously, a really good example of uh, what you call whiteness uh, versions of discourse would be civility politics, uh, which you see weaponized again and again uh, against Maori uh, wahine here, um, especially in the political space, when they dare to uh, be loud or speak out about something or push back. Uh, on any of the the abuse that they're getting every day. 
Absolutely. I mean, we saw that um, with uh, the Posey Parker uh, protests and with, you know, then Minister uh, Marama Davidson. And when she talked about um, this idea of violence actually originating from this cis-normative white structure, once again, she did the work of uh, naming it as cis-normative patriarchy and uh, whiteness. And that is what then brought about the backlash. And uh, that backlash itself also, Kyle, in many ways, is demonstration of mm-hmm. whiteness in and of itself. So as you rightly point out, the politics of civility then pretty much disciplines what can and cannot be said. And in that process, therefore, marks out uh, the other, which legitimately must be erased or which must not be heard because um, it is uncivil or it is beyond the realm of that can be heard. You know, that act of policing, as you rightly pointed out, um, the works to erase the voices of Maori Wahini, uh, activists, politicians, educators. You see um, educators, I've seen educators being attacked in similar ways. Mm-hmm. I have seen um, uh, activists being attacked in similar ways. And often uh, the, with then, you know, and this is the paradox of it, uh, often with tremendous amounts of misogyny and uh, violence that is so once you mark something as uncivil that then becomes a justification for the misogyny and the hate right and we've also seen this you know with uh, dr sapna samant you know who mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i have collaborated with um, uh, with her work at care and she's an activist that um, does really amazing work on hindutva and um, you know it's again an example of the civility politics of whiteness that, you know, Tova O'Brien did a piece that directly uh, targeted Sapna in terms of the language she was using to talk about Hindutva, which is a far-right political ideology and whiteness. And that then brought in fresh rounds of attack, both from uh, white supremacists and Hindutva. So this is a perfect example where you see um, a discursive construction in the mainstream, in the fairly mainstream media, and how that then links to uh, white supremacist and Hindutva fascist attacks, that construction mobilized those attacks, you know. And it feels, you know, when you see some mainstream media and some uh, politicians in, indulge in this, it's at the best uh, ignorance, right? They haven't done enough background research of their own or have enough background understanding to engage with these concepts in a way that is useful or even fair. Uh, and then there's this, re- this other real knee-jerk response to any mention of this stuff is just to call it culture war um, or to call it identity politics. And you say, that's genuinely not what it is. And that, that's beautifully captured. And again, you see what is quite um, powerful to note there is the effect that is produces of silencing. So in the case of Dr. Saman, you have one of the very few voices that is speaking out about Hindutva and its threats here in New Zealand. She has done that consistently. And uh, that kind of media construction, which absolutely comes from uh, ignorance, um, which comes from the lack of research that you would expect journalists to do. And, you know, Kyle, I talk about this again in my writing and this is quite triggering to the right as well. I talk about this as sort of the white mediocrity, or if you will, of um, the discursive spaces, right? So if you look at the nature of journalism itself, there is so much mediocrity that is built into it, where actually um, uh, one can go about doing a piece like that without investing in the research that is necessary. And part of that is that we don't have the infrastructures to hold that kind of coverage accountable. You know, just because there isn't that discursive register for us to learn about Hindutva, then to actually do the research to know what it actually is, and then to hold it accountable based on uh, that learning. You know, so that kind of uh, space for deep, critical, uh, reflexive, uh, journalism seems to be quite limited. And I think, you know, as we've said multiple times on this podcast, and, and a lot of us have just said it across social media continuously, uh, there is intent behind that as well. You know, it does not serve class interests um, among the capital class and the people who hold power 
for journalists to be well resourced and have the capacity to go and do this research, even if they wanted to. Yes. Uh, and you're unlikely to get people in positions to make these arguments, you know, to be promoted uh, into a position to make these arguments if they're not working within that system in the first place, if they don't already hold a particular set of viewpoints. Absolutely. And it also uh, uh, feeds into clickbait um, market logics uh, quite powerfully, right? So um, uh, that kind of uh, short piece that is actually fairly sloppily done, uh, fairly under-researched, and you could say that you know part of that is the lack of resources, also contributes to then a particular political economy of the market uh, that uh, thrives on speaking to a particular segment of uh, the audience that would um, uh, sort of be drawn into that. But then you see that there is sort of a direct flow from there into sort of fairly fringe outlets like the platform or uh, Carl Dufresne's blog. You know? Less so, and less French, less and less French, sadly. Yeah, less and less French, absolutely. So there is a continuity there, Carl, and the, the Kyle, which I'm pointing out, in the sense that from mainstream media to sort of these right-wing spaces that are peddling disinformation, uh, there is real continuity. Of course, part of that is the market logic. The other part of that is the whiteness of the settler colonial logic and they seem to work hand in hand absolutely and i think we've seen a really horrible example of that in the last week Um, and we talked about this over the weekend as well Uh, and that's the very clear political hit job uh being implemented against wellington mayor tori fano um where it was picked up like this idea was picked up and created by people that we know are far right muckrakers uh and all the stuff was flying around social media. And for some unknown reason, a whole bunch of producers and reporters just trusted this uh, as as being fact and reported on it with a, a range of details that were assumed to be fact, whereas no one had actually seen the stuff in real life. Uh, and then, as you say, this was up on the platform. There's some stuff on News Talk ZB and then on every single mainstream outlet as well, although they tried to be are somewhat more civil about it, uh, at least in terms of the language they were using. It was, yeah, a rather disgusting example of how this works. And then when you go to uh, an infrastructure right, like the platform, uh, then you see this come to full bloom, right? So I, I think uh, that mapping of that uh, trajectory of that pathway is really interesting because um, it shows what I would call the investment of uh, the mainstream media in racist logics that feed the far right, you know, and this is the part which is really interesting, right? That which is that part of the neoliberal uh, infrastructure of the media is that media as such play out multiple narratives at the same time. So even as it feeds into this, uh, the same media platforms would uh, run stories on disinformation or on misogyny. Right. As if these um, issues are independent and separate from each other. And part of that is the ideological production of um, uh, uh, mediated discourses and the kinds of markets they are speaking to. The the fact is that there is a market and um, the media appeal to that market. The other part of it, I also think, is the uh, lack of absolute lack of anti-racist pedagogy. You know, that um, uh, when you really consider the kind of callousness of um, coverage, particularly uh, covering issues that uh, relate uh, to global uh, politics or the coverage of issues related to Tetiriti or coverage of, in this instance, um, uh, Maori women politicians, uh, the underlying investment seems to be to crafting particular narratives that speak to um, the, the whiteness of Aotearoa as a settler colony. And the end result is to serve power. To yes. Again, going back to what we were saying earlier um, around the way this is used as a tool of erasure uh, to silence uh, different voices, um, the power in 
uh, Aotearoa, uh, well, in the New Zealand state, uh, predominantly arises uh, through a, you know, white supremacist colonial uh, structure that, you know, that it was built on. And, hey, you know, arguments about Titiriti aside, um, that, that clearly is taking a backseat uh, in the formation of our country. These narratives serve that structure. They serve to ensure that that structure will continue to propagate unabated. Uh, and anything that might be a threat to that uh, is seen as an other. Yes, yes. And and an other that um, must be erased, then, right? And which I think communicatively it also is very interesting in terms of looking at those processes of erasure. I think it's an interesting question to ask in terms of how the other is erased. And what I find quite violent, in fact, is the production of stigmatizing narratives and uh, stigmatizing narratives that uh, reproduce colonial archetypes, you know, archetypes of the primitive other, the savage other, uh, the lazy other. You see how those continue to uh, perpetuate. And um, at the same time, to actually talk about those portrayals, it seems like, um, turns one into a racist or being labeled as racist, right? So you, it's, there is also um, sort of this portrayal of El Terroa as um, sort of a really harmonious um, the, uh, secular colonial space where Maori and Pake have, have figured out the rules of the dance and how it's all harmonious. So for anyone that is talking about actually this kind of violence, uh, then is uh, seen as a, a threat, but also one uh, that is rendering impure this sort of pure space that is El Terroa, which again is uh, again a co another coded racist narrative, right? So you see this consciously that all these foreigners, for instance, you know, so migrants, uh, particularly dark-skinned migrants, are not supposed to say anything. We should just be grateful and. Um, for um, a migrant to point out any of this as bringing an impure politics that is rendering El Teroa impure and causing all these troubles in El Teroa. Yeah, and a really clear example of that is for non-white migrants who happen to say, hey, this isn't that great, you know, or like criticize something, the response will always be, oh, go home then, you know, um, regardless if they're like first or second or whatever generation. Uh, whereas if you have expat, you know, people from uh, the UK uh, or other other groups that helped to colonize New Zealand in the first place, they'll be taken very seriously. Oh yeah, I think we should be more like more like Britain, you know, or yeah. uh, wherever. You you very rarely hear the same uh, arguments deployed against them. Yes, and and so you know this is quite powerful in terms of how the narrative around the migrant is racialized as well, right? So I can't tell you how many times the sort of the kind of Twitter trolls I get, you know, they will talk <laughs> about, hey, you stupid moron, this is not um, El Terroa, you're in a different country, this is New Zealand, go back yeah. to whatever shithole you came from, right? So so that juxt juxtaposition is also quite powerful. Yeah, it's, it's something can be really hard to determine where it's coming from as well. It's such a morass um, out there. And if we're bringing social media into it, uh, you know, we've got this whole, and we've talked about this online, this whole range of uh, bots and sock puppets who are clearly coming from somewhere that are doing the work of harassment and abuse alongside the more institutionalized versions um, of this particular discourse. Absolutely. And I was just going to say that, Kyle, that on one hand, you have these automated digital uh, spaces that um, uh, clearly um, form uh, key resources in this infrastructure of, um, uh, say, anti-migrant rhetoric. But then sort of you also have institutionalized structures like um, the platform that will, say, for instance, um, uh, target an entity like uh, FIAMS, you know, when it issues um, a statement around Palestine, and then there is an implicit message in there 
that you know you don't really quite fit our culture that then you go back to wherever you came from because you don't fit our culture you know so that kind of activation in that sense very much is also supported uh, financially by actors within Elterwa that clearly um, are happy to support these narratives and there is a market that is um, feeding into because they see this stuff as a risk to their power base right yes as much as anything else i mean i i think you know we can never forget that they are probably also racist uh, and that is a one of the things driving them to do this but i think first and foremost it is this this group or these people are a threat to us uh either financially or in terms of the amount of power that we hold in these spaces uh we need to ensure that they are raised and and you know this is part of what i have seen in some of my research is this is part of a global trajectory yes so um, uh, what we are seeing in elterawa is not independent of what is happening elsewhere and this is a point which i think is really important to note although the the right and particularly the far right will go to great pains to say that all the stuff is being imported from the us you know the critical race theory stuff that is being imported from the us but that an exam is an example of communicative inversion which you know is the yeah. inversion of materiality on its head because what that discourse reflects is sort of this pattern of attacks on critical race theory on conversations on racism justice power inequities um that uh, sort of form a part of the bannon trumpian universe and uh, clearly have started networking into various um, western democracies if you think about the uk if you think about australia if you think about parts of europe and then of course you know in elterawa one would argue that there is a positive investment into this uh, specifically because perhaps elterawa with its uh, possibilities with tetiriti offers an architecture for resistance you know uh, which is why i think it it also forms a significant space in terms of targeting of the far right global far right infrastructure in terms of um uh, attempting to silence uh, the possibilities of solidarity possibilities of anti racist work i always find that particular projection uh from the right just so absurd because who do they think is importing the stuff we don't have any people here we're like we we don't have the money to do this <laughs> we don't have like the the left doesn't have um the framework capable of of bringing a culture war here and you know it's been shown like again and again the the way that this pipeline works you know numerous people have shown how the funding pipeline works from the states or from the UK um how the think tank pipeline works to bring those ideas here and yet somehow it's just this unknown leftist uh organization who is bringing the culture war um and alongside that you have the mainstream media and this is another one of those little tools they use to uphold hegemonic kind of structures and that's to use both sides as soon as these kind of things drop when it's very clear that one of these sides is right out on the fringe uh, as far as its perception of reality goes and you know the sort of this idea of balance for instance in what you're pointing to is this notion of balance in mainstream media reporting i mean some of the earliest pieces of work on media analysis i did was right around um, the us interventions in iraq and afghanistan and what was quite striking when doing that work and publishing it is sort of the investment of the uh, imperial structures if you will in ideas of balance that actually worked to further the hegemonic configurations and an entire infrastructure of violence as invasion and the way that worked is uh, that even as uh, journalists reproduced disinformation in the mainstream you think about operation iraqi freedom itself or the invasion of afghanistan itself based upon disinformation 
that were fed through and amplified through mainstream media, then one has to really look at the um, not just complicity, but the investment of mainstream media in this political economy. And uh, that then really raises questions about um, sort of um, uh, sacred cows, if you will, like the idea of balance, because um, the balance then really is exposed as a mechanism that can sustain disinformation-based propaganda campaigns to the extent that in a media story, you can say that, well, I have just listened to both viewpoints, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm objective. I, I'm just putting both viewpoints yes. out there and the audience can decide for themselves as if there's not an entire framework um, trying to influence the audience at any given point, right? It's, yeah, it's a height of absurdity. absurdity. Uh, and it's really, to get to get into current events with this, it's really gone fully mask off uh, yes. with the genocide in Gaza. Yes. Because any semblance of balance has just gone out the, out the window. We've seen maybe one Palestinian voice in Aotearoa uh, platformed over the last eight weeks uh, 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 among a deluge of uh, people who are platforming Israeli uh, government and uh, Israeli occupation forces propaganda and like <laughs> outright lies, you know, like oh, a lot of the stuff is, is getting debunked in real time. Uh, yeah. And yet we have spokespeople showing up in media as if they are an expert uh, or as if they are objective themselves. Yeah. Spreading lies, like yes. out, outright lies over and over again. Um, and the one time uh, a Palestinian voice has platformed, um, we've also had him on the podcast, uh, Tamim Shaltoni, had his his uh, audio edited to remove mention of genocide. Yeah. Just horrific. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, they have so much solidarity uh, with uh, Tamim and is an important voice here in Aotearoa. It's, it's lovely that you had him on your podcast, Kaya. You know, one of the concepts um, that I find quite powerful theoretically is the concept of communicative um, inequality. So inequality in the distribution of communicative resources, all the way from information to decision-making, to participation, to voice. So if you look at that concept and then think about communicative inequality in terms of voice, you know, and then apply that to the question of balance, uh, it, it, it's, it, it sort of unpacks that whole framework of balance, if you will. Um, because, you know, one can um, say that in a specific story, I'm balancing it out by having, say, Zionist voices and then uh, a Palestinian voice. But that story itself, in spite of giving that appearance of balance, can work to perpetuate communicative inequality by A, being oblivious to the communicative inequality that underlies those discursive infrastructures, if you will, in, in a global scale. So what does it mean to listen to a Palestinian voice here in Aotearoa or globally vis-a-vis -vis what does it mean to foreground Israeli narratives here in Aotearoa connected to Israeli narratives in other Western democracies globally. So that's sort of at one level. But beyond that, then, is the question of how balance is performed to delegitimize uh, the voices of the raised colonized margins. And I think that 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 is the process through which particular media stories and then the media architecture overarching can become a site for reproducing um, colonial, settler colonial imperial violence, which is that, you know, you bring a Palestinian voice in and then you juxtapose the voice amidst uh, Israeli narratives that are based upon, as you uh, point out, Kyle, say, uh, disinformation, um, propaganda and lies. So what that then does to um, the Palestinian narrative is that um, it introduces it into a media ecosystem 
that is removed from the visceral reality of negotiating that occupation. And we are seeing this constantly in terms of, uh, say, for instance, the erasure of the ongoing attacks on hospitals, just to give you one example of the uh, death of children, the death of infants. And that raises this fundamental question. Um, uh, would, uh, do we fundamentally inhabit the world where a world where different lives matter differently, where the life of a Palestinian child, for instance, has different value compared to um, you know, other lives in other uh, Western contexts. And again, you know, mediate that through the idea of balance that when you have a story that uh, uh, is, you know, engaging with the Palestinian voice, but doesn't really engage with this broader context of violence and settler colonial violence and the extreme forms of violence we are seeing, that then actually continues to perpetuate the violence. And that is what I'm describing as whiteness, right? Which is the performance of balance that continues to establish and reproduce uh, the hegemonic formations. And in that process, then even as we say, on one hand, we, are, we have heard a Palestinian voice, we are not really listening to that voice. That voice continues to be erased. And even you know, in media spaces overseas, which shockingly, you know, like in the States and in the UK uh, and Canada are now doing, I, I hesitate to say better uh, than media here, just by having spokespeople on like from NGOs, you know, which we, which we haven't really done here to any useful degree. Even when they have someone on from Doctors Without Borders or the UN, you know, we've, we have had a couple here. I know anyone listening who's like, oh, no, we've had the couple on RNZ or whatever. Yes, I know we've had two or three. Well done. But it's a regular thing overseas, right? Even, uh, you know, a horrible man like Piers Morgan has had multiple people on give a Palestinian viewpoint uh, that is far more antagonistic than anything that has shown up in New Zealand media. But every single time over there when this happens, you get this, do you condemn Hamas though? And we're still saying that uh, 20,000 plus deaths later, like multiple war crimes, like very, very clear war crimes, like incontrovertible evidence that this is a genocidal campaign, an ethnic cleansing campaign. All these NGOs and all these experts who are, who are saying, yes, this is what's happening. You know, like Doctors Without Borders are somehow, you know, also having having shade thrown at them for daring to suggest that there are war crimes happening here. Whenever they're showing up on the media, at least they are able to present this viewpoint, but it's always it's being put inside this narrower and narrower um, antagonistic frame from the reporters speaking to them themselves. And um, I agree with you that when we look at um, coverage, um, say, for instance, of the heart of empire um, in the US, you know, I, I look at sort of the New York Times stories. Mm. And you think about uh, the complicity of um, the New York Times um, in the uh, imperial project. And yet you have some openings, as you point out, Kyle, because of the presence of civil society voices that are doing this work of witnessing, right? And, and which is where the witnessing is so important. Um, and, and that then connects back to the quality of media in Aotearoa, uh, raising the question, what does it then say about the media here that on one hand, there are clear sources of disinformation that are performing Zionist propaganda, uh, for instance, the narrative of uh, beheaded uh, babies, you know, that narrative is constantly reproduced. So on one hand, you know, those kinds of sources um, the, the, that really raise questions about credibility are being platformed. On the other hand, there really seems to be uh, sort of a, a very limited uh, positioning of sources to offer uh, counterpoints or counter narratives. Um, and I think when you ask that question, I come back, uh, Kyle, again to uh, the other question, which is how does that relate to how systematically media in Aotearoa have portrayed Maori or issues 
related to Tetiriti and if there is a pattern here that is continuing to be reproduced. You know, so you have media, for instance, that have offered apologies for their uh, anti-Maori frames and coverage and then continue to uh, sustain the racist um, narratives, uh, which I think in many ways raise really important questions about um, sort of the ideology of whiteness and how built in that is into mainstream media in Aotearoa. They're very uh, practiced at it, right? And, and and then the question is, you know, as, as, a, as a communication educator, I think the one thing I wonder about is that what does it mean for media pedagogy, for what we teach our students, for uh, uh, this space to change and for this space to transform. And you see that there is so much investment in uh, maintaining this architecture, if you will, of whiteness, that any kind of conversation of social justice or justice-based uh, reporting um, uh, re produces so much backlash. Or if you think about the public interest journalism funds and um, uh, the aspects of Tetiriti that were written into the PIGF, and then you have actors like Carl Dufresne who directly attack that uh, sort of Tetiriti-based components of uh, uh, the public um, interest journalism fund. Uh, and and then the framing of that is that you know we are uh, losing sort of the objectivity of media and it's all becoming woke and uh, social justice based. Um, and I think uh, on one hand, you know, one could just look at that and ignore it as some kind of you know rant from uh, sort of the right. On the other hand, I think it also points to this ideological investment, if you will, of uh, the media in. Um, sort of reproducing particular kinds of uh, narratives um, that have historically silenced voices of Maori, have historically, historically silenced narratives of colonization, aspects that particularly point to notions of dissent, notions of resistance that don't fit well with this kind of, oh, we are all in harmony, we all get along, and um, Aotearoa is a, a paradise kind of a story, you know? Yeah, it's every time we go through a cycle like this, it just seems to uncover more of that internal framework and those the way it's it's mechanised to produce a particular set of outcomes. Yes. Uh, and I think as, as resource um, and capacity of these institutions under neoliberalism, uh, get stripped away. The the facade is is being stripped away as well to a large extent because stuff just gets sloppier. And and you know part of this also is uh, sort of how we approach this question of disinformation. I think is uh, really important. Um, I'm uncomfortable with this idea that you know disinformation sits in the space of the far right. It's religion. only on Telegram. It's the only place you'll find it. Exactly. Or a signal, <laughs> right? I'm much more interested in who produces disinformation, what are the political economies of disinformation networks, because disinformation by definition is strategic. That means that um, uh, there is underlying ecosystems of disinformation are political and economic actors that are disseminating um, the disinformation. And I think that's what makes the question of disinformation really interesting is when you look at the sort of the role of mainstream media as sources of dis uh, disinformation, when you look at the role of the state as a source of disinformation, when you look at imperial geopolitics as the uh, source of disinformation, right? I mean, uh, in the context of Israel and Palestine and the ongoing con uh, conflict, if you will. And even that framing of this as conflict, uh, you know, is, is problematic because it's a colonial um, uh, intervention. But uh, within this context, for instance, if you ask the question of terror and how the narrative of terror mm -hmm. is produced um, and who is the terrorist, I mean, you know, one of the things I've grappled with, for instance, is, you know, I wrote a blog piece in which um, I said that, you know, when I woke up witnessing um, uh, solidarity with, um, uh, you know, a decolonizing intervention, the way in which that got framed 
in terms of, um, and of course, in that blog piece that I'd written, I had gone to great extent at the end to talk about what I mean by decolonization, the idea that we have to critique and interrogate the notion of violence on uh, civilians. We have to look at decolonization as a space for opening up uh, voice infrastructures where the colonized could articulate their agency. But that got framed into the terror narrative. And I think, you know, what I thought really interesting with regard to that is even how the label of terror or terrorist is produced in this um, sort of disinformation infrastructure is something worth interrogating, including the role of state, um, mm -hmm. uh, the role of state terror can and asking questions such as should states be labeled as terrorist states for perpetuating uh, terror for their military apparatus perpetuating terror. And I think those kinds of questions that need to be asked, well, one of the things of about disinformation campaigns is that you see they foreclose possibilities and they foreclose conversations, right? So because the disinformation then drives the hate such that they limit discursively the possibilities of conversation. So you see pal Palestinian voices being violently erased. You also see voices of those expressing solidarity. So you talked about NGOs. For many of these NGOs, just documenting the extent of violence turns them into targets of the Israeli propaganda um, a network, if you will, right? That there are arguments made that those NGOs or civil society organizations are supporting terrorists, petitions are uh, raised around um, uh, that frame. So the goal of all of that is to actually silence voices that raise critical questions and challenge that disinformation infrastructure. So I just want to come back to this idea that disinformation is not just you know, something that happens on the fringe, not just something that happens on uh, platforms like Telegram, but it is part of an infrastructure that works to silence critical questions and critical um, interrogations of the hegemonic structure. And when it is in mainstream media, or if it is coming from uh, a state actor, the amplification power of it is just that much stronger. You know, yeah, there's some horrible stuff on Telegram, but most people don't see that. I mean, it's bad. I'm not, I'm not going to like... Yes. And, and some of the stuff originates there, yes. but particularly with the genocide in Gaza, it's not where it's coming from. You know, it is coming directly from a, a state actor and their armed forces. Yes. Or from Joe Biden, you know, from yes. the podium, you know, from yes. the president, the most quote unquote powerful man in the world standing yes. up and just spreading just horrific disinformation. Yes. Um, and as you say, the purpose is to label everything at odds with that framework as being sympathetic uh, with atrocity when, you know, the opposite is often true. Yeah. And I mean, you, you talk about Biden, um, Kyle, and I think that uh, when one looks at the US as empire, there is, um, that's why we need that kind of historic analysis of uh, media frames and um, media production. I mean, we go back uh, two decades and we see Bush, Colin Powell, Operation Iraqi Freedom and the manufacturing of um, the consent, if you will, to take from Chomsky um, around uh, the US imperial invasions then. If you go further back, into sort of the Cold War frames, mm -hmm. you see the active investment in the production of uh, disinformation uh, to drive regime change, for instance, or uh, to destabilize democracies. I mean, you have to uh, think about the birth of uh, neoliberalism, uh, which is sort of Chile, you know, where uh, uh, sort of that is the laboratory of the neoliberal experiment. And uh, if you think about the coup, uh, manufactured in Chile by U.S. interventionism. At the heart of that is production of disinformation by uh, state actors. And then if you go further back, then Indonesia, you think about uh, the 1965 genocide in Indonesia or across the global south in terms of U.S. interventionism in supporting uh, far-right political economic actors. I mean, the state's investment in 
the production of disinformation and destabilization of democracies, ironically, has been the uh, modus operandi, you know? Yeah, and I mean, we're not surprised by this at this point. And, you know, at some at some point, I think, post-Afghanistan and Iraq, they realized that it costs too much to be doing that. And for the most part, they just bomb people and don't talk about it at all, right? And like the, the US is bombing people all the time. And but you just never hear about it. You know, there there are there are genocides happening everywhere with tacit US support. Um so sometimes often trained by the Israeli Defense Forces as well. I don't know. Like it's it's the most ludicrous stuff. Um, but in this case, it's it's so obvious, it's so clear cut. And I guess due to the nature of, of that, um, and the the way that the US is so directly tied to to Israel, you know, as a funder um, and business partner, I guess they've had to really step it up again. But I think you know we we often worry about the amount of media literacy uh, among audiences and among the electorate as being able to see through disinformation. But I think people are far more media literate about this stuff than they ever have been previously. Yeah. Um, and for better or worse, uh, platforms like Twitter have helped with that. You know, that's where we're seeing most of the stuff uh, coming out of Gaza. And and that's been so powerful to witness, of course, you know, if you think about platforms like Twitter or Instagram, um, there is the underlying logic of platform capital. Um, beyond that, you know, what has been so powerful to witness are the accounts emerging from Gaza documenting the violence. You cannot um, hide the violence and the scale of the violence. And what has been, you know, for me so powerful to witness is um, the work of journalists on the ground. Mm-hmm. At, um, I mean, you think about the number of journalists that have been killed in um, Gaza. But the reason uh, for that, right? They're, like, yeah. they're, they're killing them for a reason. Yes. I mean, if you can destroy the narrative infrastructure, then um, you have turned off the lights, right? So you have no um, uh, register for witnessing the kind of violence that is going on, right? Uh, and at the same time, because of those registers of violence, you're absolutely, I agree with you, that uh, the narrative around um, uh, the occupation is seems to be shifting at a global scale, at least in terms of the kinds of protests you are seeing, at least in terms of challenging the Zionist propaganda that the critique of Israel is anti-Semitism, you know, uh, that is seriously being taken on and debunked. Um, And that is doing something quite powerful, I feel, Kyle, which is that it is opening up more spaces for these conversations. I mean, in academic circles, I can see it among colleagues, you know, that um, um, there used to be a point of time where academics used to feel really, and I I think it it continues in many ways, that there is a sense of fear for speaking up and speaking out um, in solidarity with Palestinians, because um, your job can be on the line. As we have seen here in Aotearoa, you know, uh, there are attempts at recording getting recordings of your classroom uh, lectures, for instance, as it's happened with... Uh, That's disgusting stuff. Yes. So there is that real fear, right? But at the same time, I think more and more people are developing that courage because of the acts of witnessing. They are also feeling that, you know what, at this point, I have to, in many ways, work through the emotions I feel, including the anxiety which is real and the fear about losing my job which is very real to speak up you know i mean you just think about the the uh, story that emerged today in terms of um the, the infants that were left mm, in the oh, hospital just yeah no words yeah. absolutely no words as far as i know has barely been covered here and at the same time, when you think about it, Kyle, right, that that kind of accounting and witnessing is happening. And uh, when you you know, listen to uh, voices of journalists like Motaz and mm-hmm. Bishan, you know, they have become in uh, many social media spaces across the globe, these uh, journalistic uh, voices for accounting, for witnessing. Right. And now you're saying that it's at a point where these journalists are saying, 
that um, I'm going off air and I don't know if I'm going to be safe or if I'm going to come back on again or not. And that draws in our affect, our emotions, but it also connects us to these acts of witnessing in that sense. And, and then it goes back to that broader question, Kyle, about sort of what is the role of journalists and what, what is the role of journalism, right? So you, you see journalists facing these um, tremendous forms of violence, extreme violence, right? This sustained attack on um, uh, journalistic institutions, if you will. And in spite of that, uh, these journalists doing their work. And then you think about uh, the kind of privilege that safeguards journalists here in Ottawa that um, won't even uh, sort of open up a, a small window of a register to listen to these voices. This Inequity in journalistic practices is something also that is becoming very evident, you know? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't think anyone would say that I'm not antagonistic towards media in New Zealand. You know, I, I cop to that. I, I understand that that is where I come from. But these last couple of months, I just, I have very little faith in the ability of New Zealand journalistic institutions to reform given how they've responded to what's happening in Gaza. I don't think I'll ever forget, like, which uh, outlets, uh, all of them, um, and and which journalists and reporters uh, either refused to platform this stuff um, or actively platform disinformation. It's just, you don't come back from that. It, it, the, the reality is so clear and the urgency to engage in journalism and to hold power to account, which should be, you know, it should be what underlies everything that they do. And, you know, I come from a, a politics and media background and I understand how these institutions of power and they are, they are meaning-making for hegemonic frameworks and, you know, no one would, would be in those roles if they uh, weren't uh, acquiescing to that in the first place. And even then, I would have thought we would have seen better. And maybe that's naivete or some like final hope of mine that there was there was space to move here. But mm. I'm not sure how some of these organizations rebuild trust with their audience at this point. You know what you're saying about sort of this two-month window, if you will, into the nature of journalistic practice shows so much about the investment of journalism here into whiteness, both settler colonialism and imperialism. And I go back to the point you raise about uh, coverage in the UK or coverage in the US, which seems to be moving. Um, and then the question is that what's happening to journalism here in Aotearoa? And I wonder, as time progresses, Kyle, if journalism in Aotearoa will start mirroring some of the narratives that we are starting to see in the US, for instance, emerge now. You know, that's sort of one question I have empirically. The other question I have is in terms of what it means for journalism education and pedagogy, really. Because I think as educators, we really have to grapple with this question of what does it mean to train the next generation of journalists in terms of building their capacities to interrogate power, to uh, witness acts of violence, and to actually take seriously journalistic ethics in terms of uh, listening to voices that are um, systematically erased by hegemonic structures. I think that to me, it points to perhaps our feelings as well as media educators and as um, uh, you know, communication educators, journalism educators in terms of uh, the kinds of journalists we are training and uh, we are educating uh, uh, and particular uh, kinds of practices that are perhaps being reproduced that you know, sort of not creating uh, or building these habits for interrogating power and asking critical questions. How do you, you know, as an educator, you can you can put everything there, right? We we can we can train fantastic journalists, 
But if our media institutions don't want workers who like who who are like that, you know, if they're if part of the hiring process is to make sure that those kind of people aren't on their books, maybe not like with specific intent, uh, but at least insofar as their workflow is or seems to be uh, designed, how do you? How do we shift that? How do we get to a place where, I guess, from from my point of view, the media does its job, you know? Mm. And but I, I really struggle to call much of what media does in the current age journalism. So much of it is copy and paste um, PR and press releases, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it? It is quite um, sad, actually, to witness that. But, you know, what do you point to in terms of what do we do? I think that's a really interesting question in terms of what do we do with media institutions to hold them to account? And I think that's where... Uh, I feel, you know, a couple of things. One is that institutions are invested in reproducing themselves. So they are not going to change um, uh, themselves, right? These are market-driven institutions that will um, uh, respond to algorithmic uh, logics and uh, investor sensibilities. And then uh, their overarching investment in that ideology of whiteness, once again. So I think the way we change that, then if we look at uh, how media reforms have come to be across the globe, is through mobilization, is through protest, is our activism outside of these institutions and doing exactly what you're doing. And I see you doing this on uh, digital spaces, Although I'm sure it's not always pleasant for you, right? But to keep on holding them to account and keep on uh, building this counter narrative. I will give you an example of this, Kyle. You know, I I was sharing with you that, you know, our research team were looking at the media coverage of um, Operation Iraqi Freedom building up to the invasion and in the first two years of it. So we had uh, content analysis based upon framing. You know, framing theory looks at how media frames are produced, what gets placed into those frames and what gets it is. Now, so based on these content analyses, we had um, sort of quantifiable data, if you will, of the kinds of biases we see in the media. And then I remember, you know, sharing these findings at, um, uh, you know, conferences of journalism educators and researchers that also brings in many journalists, you know, and uh, the, the, it became a point of real debate because, you know, the people with that journalistic uh, background in professional journalism would look at the findings and be very defensive that no, 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 you know, it is not the job of journalists to do propaganda. And, he, and here we had, um, the, you know, the data that sort of was pretty robust in pointing out exactly what the uh, frames were. And I think um, what I found through that experience is building empirically a register for actually documenting what is going on is equally important. And that's where I think it's also um, our job as researchers, as academics to continue to document uh, the media uh, frames and then to partner with activists, with movements, with critical voices like yours to continue uh, to make visible, if you will, uh, the kinds of frames and the kinds of effects that these uh, frames uh, produce. Now, the other part of it, I also think, is that um, uh, sort of there's real room for building uh, progressive media and progressive infrastructures. I mean, you know, we see this with um, uh, the coverage um, uh, of Gaza, right? That in spite of the mainstream media blackout, largely in Western democracies, um, we still happen to get the accounts of what was happening in Gaza. Yes. And that was through simple architectures like Twitter and Instagram. And that shows you the power uh, today of journalists to build platforms and spaces that can document and that can witness. I mean, you know, in India, for instance, in the face of the kind of um, the Hindutva uh, politics that where you see Islamophobia deeply institutionalized through state and media structures, 
where I find the power of resistance is in uh, public uh, journalism, in people's journalism, in citizen journalism, in community radio. So I guess the other question is that what does it mean to build robust grassroots based uh, mediated spaces, how to um, find um, funding models that will sustain uh, those spaces. I think that's a really interesting question. I don't think that we have to keep coming back to these institutional structures. There are ways in which we can bypass these institutions and create alternative logics. You know, I've seen, for instance, you know, the work we have done with, um, you know, Dalit oppressed caste women farmers. Um, in uh, Telangana in South India. And, you know, uh, they are challenging their uh, BT cotton and sort of the infrastructure of BT cotton that has shaped uh, agrarian farming practices mm -hmm. and sort of challenging that with uh, sustainable farming practices rooted in um, indigenous traditions and ways of knowing. And they, the women point out that, you know, part of that is changing the narrative and changing sort of the sources of information in terms of what is spread on uh, mainstream radio as advertising that is targeting these communities. So for them, the community radio becomes the way then to tell the story of seed and so seed sovereignty. I find that example quite powerful because you have here um, in the global south, um, a community of landless um, uh, oppressed caste, women farmers, and they are able to shift the narrative, not only within that farming community, but as a register then for a global movement called the Millet Network, which is an, an alternative uh, the farming movement, you know. And what that story tells us is that if we can, if, if we want to imagine decolonizing alternatives, or if you want to imagine um, alternatives that um, uh, sort of offer different kinds of political economies, uh, to the mainstream media, uh, there can be lots of possibility. Yeah, that's um, it's a really fantastic example, and thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, I think we sometimes forget that this stuff is possible. You know, it's it's not as insurmountable as it seems. It's it's pretty bleak. <laughs> you know, it's it's not great, uh, but but there are ways forward. I think. It's... I mean, you're doing this podcast, and uh, that's an example of what is possible. Here we are. Uh, sitting down and offering a full-on critique uh, 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 through sort of a fairly, what one might argue is a um, sort of elaborate conversation, right? Because we are also not afforded this kind of luxury within uh, particular kinds of media uh, ecosystems, if you will, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think that's probably a really good place to leave it before we get onto the next hour-long track of our conversation, because there's, there's so much in this space to talk about. Yes. And thank you for this important work that you're uh, doing, Kyle. I mean, I think that this example of um, uh, this space that you are creating with this uh, podcast is the sort of things we want to teach um, uh, students of journalism and students of media that... Um, uh, you know, there are possibilities that you can craft here now and you can work toward uh, building things. So thank you. Thank you, Mohan. Uh, yeah, really appreciate that. And there are plenty of other talented people out there uh, who will make much better stuff than we can. So everyone, get to it, get to it. Uh, Mohan, if people want to find you online or find your work, where can they do that? So um, they can find me on Twitter. <laughs> 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 at uh, MJ Dutt. That's my handle, M-J-D-U-T-T. Um, they can also find me um, on uh, the uh, CARE uh, Facebook page, which is the Facebook page for the Center for Culture-Centered Approach to Research and Evaluation or CARE. If you just uh, you know type that in, on your uh, Google um, uh, browser that will take you to the Facebook page. And CARE also has a YouTube channel where we host um, a lot of our talks with the idea of generating these public registers. So uh, you are welcome to follow us on any of those platforms and subscribe to those platforms. Fantastic. Thank you so much once again, Mohan. Thank you so much. Here. And Thank you to our audience. I uh, really appreciate you listening through this one. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, share it around. I think uh, we can never have enough critique of powerful institutions, uh, whether that's political um, institutions or media institutions or business institutions, uh, and the list goes on. Find us on Twitter, 
uh we've got the patreon link in the summary as usual if you want to help support independent media and yeah let your friends and family know there's independent media out there uh which is trying its best to speak truth to power uh in this more and more absurd uh, age that we find ourselves in we'll be back on the weekend with current events we'll catch you then if offices are then i'm living a pointless life but i'm learning all your lessons fucking politics is no distinction the words are now it's paid with good intentions and i'll admit that i'm at a loss for what to say when they criticize a cost we ought to Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we